Millennials are achieving freedom with new definitions of success. Our careers, relationships, education, family, even our politics look nothing like our parents. We're adopting what works and throwing out the rest. We are tired, but not worn, in our quest to get there. We Should Be Sleeping explores the things worth losing sleep over. Each week, we discuss the news and topics that keep us awake. Then, our guests share the intentional ways they've done it differently to achieve a new brand of success that's authentic, unconventional, and definitive of our generation. Not ready for bed? Neither are we. I'm Douglas Bonaparte. I'm Heather Bonaparte. Welcome to We Should Be Sleeping. Welcome back to the We Should Be Sleeping podcast. I am here with my wife, Heather Bonaparte. Surprise, still here. Yep, I'm Douglas Bonaparte, and... I'm over the cold. I am so done. There is no other word to describe it than done. There's a lot of snow out there. At least I can say this. People in Texas and like Kansas City are getting buried too. Well, I shouldn't say buried. They're dealing with historic levels of cold right now. Is the point that that makes you feel better? Yeah, that's a really dick thing to say, but it makes me feel better because the last three weeks here. Well, and you know what? I don't know. I think it was right around the inauguration. I was saying, I kind of feel for as many bad things as there have been. It's almost like I said it and God yeah, was you like, it. I think I said, no, I you know remember what? it. It hasn't been that bad. Yes. It hasn't really snowed. I've been getting to go outside for runs. With the kids have been outside a lot. These little outdoor birthday parties have been working out. We're okay. That was like the second or third week in January, and then boom, snowmageddon. Yeah, first and second week, you got on your high horse, and you were like, this isn't so bad. We're going to make it. And then you screwed us. I was us. feeling good. I kind of always have this thing every year where like it gets really depressing for a few weeks after the New Year's. But then once you can kind of see the end of January, you say, what do I always say? I always say, it could be 65 degrees by Valentine's Day because one year when I was growing up, I distinctly remember I was in middle school because I had my first boyfriend and I remember wearing like capris to school on Valentine's Day and feeling like hot shit because I was in like capris from like Aeropostale. And I'm like, look at me in my spring capris. I'll never forget the 65 degree Valentine's Day. So now... I'm like... That's called anchor bias, Heather. You've literally anchored your entire winter experience to some boyfriend back in high school. I wouldn't complain because I'm like the most negative person you've ever met. So like, so what? That I like can try to always see the light. But then you know what? Groundhog Day came. Yeah. And that Phil dude was like, "Uh uh-uh, you got more to come. And I was like, nah, Phil, you know what? Nice try, Phil. I'm feeling good. But then... Boom, snowmageddon. The snow, not only has there been so much snow, but it's been so cold that even the days that it's not snowing, it's not melting. So it's like snow on snow on snow on snow. Can you imagine if you were the one? Thanks. Can you imagine if you were the one who had to go outside and dig us out three times in an eight-day period? I can't imagine. I can't imagine the strife that that must have caused you. But I'll tell you, I really enjoyed watching it from the window, having two children screaming at me inside that they want more raisins. So, you know, let me just tell you, the struggle is on both sides. Fair enough. And that's what I was about to say, because there is so much that you do. Your contribution to the snow removal, this is how I think about it. Because arguably, look, you do all the laundry, 
You do all the stuff around the house. I know my job is to go out there and shovel and blow that snow away. And you literally have one habits. job. <laughs> like your only job is to remove snow when it comes. Correct. That's like now, your job. Here's the best part. Where the vent to the dryer is, it melts like when you run the dryer. It melts the right. snow outside. That's your contribution to the snow removal. There was one moment when you had taken the snowblower out for the first time this season and I was watching you out the window and <laughs> I watched you Fail. blow the snow right back in your own damn face. Oh, <laughs> the, the yeah. thing, the little tube right. shot the snow right back <laughs> in your face. It doesn't point that way. That was wind. And uh, right. Listen, that was so Florida man here. We've been here four years in this house. I can't recall two feet of snow. I can't even recall two feet of snow in the city when we lived there. Oh, no. You know why? You're failing to remember that right after Hazel was born, there were 32 inches of snow. There was like a massive snowstorm two weeks after Hazel was born. There was born. not 32 inches yes, of there... snow in the city. I definitely Check agree. the record the... books. Check the record books. I'm willing to wager something on this. One Bitcoin. I'm telling you, like... There was a snowmageddon right after Hazel was born, no, but we were so sleep-deprived, and we yeah. didn't leave the apartment anyway because we had a preemie at home. All but- right. On the next episode, we will pull up this record and state it on air. So let me ask you this. Has this changed your Bonaparte Boca Bunker mentality about, like, Having you a know, place in all, Florida? all these New York, New Jerseyans who have, like, fled to Florida and are, like, sheltering and... And by sheltering, I mean like sheltering outside in Florida in like a hammock. This is is what my parents did in the 80s. They left New York because they were apparently fed up with snow and shit. So they came down to Florida to raise kids. Do I get it? I lived the escape. And I totally get why people have decided to leave the Northeast, especially during COVID, to avoid this. But you know what, Hev? I wouldn't trade this for that. Yeah, because we actually see the other side of it. I think it's really funny, like these folks that are like, oh, come now, live the better life. It's so much better. Tell me when you've spent a summer down in Florida, okay? Yeah. I get it. It's like really lovely for a couple months in the winter and like all you like influencers can keep taking photos in your like bike shorts outside. Yeah, so- but let me tell you, it's freaking hot. Like <laughs> for all you can do outside now, you cannot do that in the summer. All right, I'm gonna let you say things like that because you've, spent fair enough time in summers in Florida and North Central Florida, which is literally a human swamp area. But I will say this. You're right. Let me know when your children... Someone asked me the other day. This is where I'm coming from. Someone asked me the other day, did you go to summer camp in South Florida? That is what they asked me. And I was like, yeah. They're like, so what they do in like July and August, like during the day, did you actually like go outside and play? And the answer is, yeah, we did. We played outside all day in a hundred degree, but I guess full humidity. Like you could see if you look like a hundred yards out in the distance, and you could. There's tons. Oh of yeah, land. the sky, the, the atmosphere is like wavy. It's not the atmosphere; it's the air itself. It's Whatever. all distorted from the heat. So to your point, because I know this, because I remember when I moved to Florida to go to UF, I was like so hot. I mean, I, I was hot. Yeah, baby. I was hot. I did peak in college, but no, I was I was hot. You're right. But I was like actually 
temperature wise, like I could not believe what I'd gotten myself into when I showed up that August. Did you sweat? I literally dropped like 15 pounds within like a month of being in Florida because I'm like, how do people eat in this weather? Like, Ah. what do you mean sit outside to eat? I was like, how do you eat anything but a smoothie and a Subway sandwich? Like, I don't even understand. But so my point being, I just think that the other like northerners who have sought refuge in Florida just have like no idea what they're in for when the weather gets warmer. But maybe they'll just flee right back up here and be like, hashtag New York tough. Well, listen. Sorry, I'm a little salty. Like, I just. Hey, hey. They're learning about snowbirding before the whole snowbird thing. And to let you all know what that is, is the snowbirds are the people who come down to Florida during the wintertime and go back north during the summertime. They try and get the best of both worlds from a temperature perspective. But I see your point. I think a lot of these folks who fled from the Northeast or New York to go down during the wintertime, my bet is along yours. They're going to be ripe. Like as soon as things open up, they're going to be right. They're fake snowbirds is what they are. They're fake, period, is what they are. See, there it is. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Shade. I'm just a little salty. It's all right. As soon as the Hamptons is swinging again, they'll leave Miami and South Florida. and They'll be right back here and slide into New York City like nothing ever like happened. Like nothing ever happened. That's my point. Don't pretend like you were there. We see you. And you know what? We got receipts. It's called your Instagram feed. <laughs> <laughs> but like everybody's situation is hey. different. Here's my little caveat. I'm a little jealous. You know, there are days I want warm. Here's my little walk back. Everybody's situation is different. There's a lot of folks. I don't blame them for a second for leaving. It's not that, but it's just. Do it for the children. I get it. I'll walk it back a little bit, but I'm salty AF right now. Let me tell you. I am freaking cold. Yeah. And the minute I am one degree less cold than I am right now. That's your elasticity is one degree. I feel I just. I need like 40 of them. I just need, like, if I can just get, like, six degrees, I can go for a run again. But I will not run below 40 degrees. Six degrees of Heather Burger. I'm telling you, it's just, like, enough. Enough's okay. enough. Enough I'm is crumbling. Enough. I'm crumbling into a <laughs> shell of a human being. Okay. Well. Wow. I'll keep you warm, baby. <laughs> uh, <laughs> happy Valentine's Day. Yay. <laughs> all right. Hope you're all staying warm. And now would be like a good time to welcome our next guest, Sarah Motzkoff. Welcome back to We Should Be Sleeping. Today, we have Sarah Moskoff, CEO and co-founder of Winnie, a marketplace for daycare and preschool helping more than 4 million parents nationwide. Sarah has a background in consumer technology and product management, with time spent as the director of product at Postmates, as well as Twitter, YouTube, and Google. Sarah, we don't know each other very well, but I feel like I do because I follow you on Twitter, and I know you are this badass, hardworking tech founder and a mom of three young children. So I just have to ask, how are you? I am very tired, (laughs) but I'm good. (laughs) Just exhausted. I can feel that. So how old are your kids? I have a about to turn nine months old. He's the one making me very tired. And then a two and a half year old and a five and a half year old. Three under five. God bless you, Sarah. So it is intense. I can imagine. So with such a full house, you are the perfect candidate to ask a question that we posed very often on our mini series, which is when was the last time one of your children cried and why? (laughs) (laughs) Two seconds ago. 
I think it was literally walking in to do this podcast. I grabbed a drink from the refrigerator. My two girls saw that there was bacon in the refrigerator and asked me to make it for them. And I said, no, (laughs) they freaked out. Bacon is the source of much distress in our house, too. To be honest, I would cry over that, too. (laughs) Fair enough. As a 36-year-old grown man, being denied bacon would probably bring me to tears. I feel for your kids in that situation. It's something we like so rarely have, but I love bacon. It's not even real bacon. It's turkey bacon, but... (laughs) Good enough. Yeah, we don't discriminate our bacon around. No. Yeah, so they saw that it was in the refrigerator and just went nuts because... It's better than chocolate for them. Yep, I hear that. I hear that. Chocolate-covered bacon, by the way, if you haven't had it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I'm down with that. I'd like that. (laughs) Anyway, enough about our chaos at home. We want to know about all things Winnie. So walk us through your background a little bit here. What inspired you for this idea? Introduce the idea a little bit more. I guess it was over five and a half years ago. (laughs) I had my first daughter. I was working at Postmates at the time. I took a short maternity leave and kind of expected that I'd hop right back into work and everything would continue as usual. But like many parents, I had no idea what I was in for with having a child, many new parents. And it really changed so much, especially kind of about how I wanted to spend my time. And I went back to work and I was really struggling as a working mother to balance kind of everything I had going on with taking care of my daughter and also trying to keep up the pace at work that I just started talking to my colleague at the time, Anne Halsell, who is now my co-founder at Winnie. And I was like, how do parents do this? Like, what? This is so hard. Isn't it such a seismic shift just in your thinking? I mean, even like when you return, it really feels like there's a piece of you that's not even there. It sounds so cheesy, but it's true. Yeah. And she had two young kids at the time and was like, yeah, it is really hard. And then we were just kind of like, we were commiserating. And then we realized like, wait a minute, where are all the tools and technology to help us as parents? Like we're building this thing at Postmates to deliver people food really quickly and help them with all the logistics of delivery. And that's great. But where is the thing to help people manage all of the new things they have to manage being parents. And so we just kind of really got excited about the idea of building something for parents. We didn't know what it was yet. We didn't know that it would be a childcare marketplace at the time. And we quit our jobs to start Winnie in January, 2016. We kicked it off and it took a couple years to realize that the thing we should build was childcare. Should have been obvious at the get-go, but I think we were just really excited to kind of bring a lot of the great talent that we had worked with at Google and Twitter and Postmates and these places to solving problems for parents. And that's what I love about a lot of the entrepreneurial stories we hear. Oh, it took us X amount of time to realize that the thing we should have done. And I think you owe yourself some credit here. Like whether it's natural or not, that's how it evolves. You pick up the ball and- You said, I care about this and I'm going to strive to tackle this issue. And then you narrow the focus over time. Exactly. Very rarely do you just be like, all right, here's the issue and here's the perfect solution for it. It morphs into that. So I'm just curious too, because this resonates a lot with me as well and how I felt going back to work after my first child. And I just remember looking for childcare options 
for my first child. And it was just this like word of mouth, go with your gut situation. I was posting on random Facebook moms groups for the town that I was moving to. And I really felt like that was the only resource I had to kind of even learn and figure it out. And it was just like, okay, just trust what you're being told. And it's like one of the, if not the biggest purchasing decision that you make in those early years. And there's less information or there was less information on that than like finding a stroller or (laughs) something that is small comparative to who is going to watch your most precious possession. And that was kind of the insight that sort of blew our mind as we were working on Winnie. We were like, wait a minute, it is so hard to get information about what childcare options exist near you and then how to assess their quality and make a decision about what's best for your child, what you can afford, what will work best for your family. But it's easy to make these other purchasing decisions. (laughs) Why is it so hard to make this one that's so important? And is there a way to start making that a little bit easier? And so we just started with the first step, which was like, let's get all the information about the options that exist in one place so that parents can easily search and compare. Like we might not be able to solve everything right away, but like at least they should know what their options are. And that turned out to be a really important first step that kind of unlocked everything else for us. Absolutely. What's really cool about that is that it seems like you built something out of your own needs and challenges. And just generally speaking, is there an advantage to you being your own market? I think in the beginning, certainly it was really helpful. Like Anne and I were both going through the challenge of finding daycare and preschool as we were kind of realizing we needed to kind of focus our product and solving a specific pain point for parents. And we were like, wait a minute, what about this one that is taking us away from actually working on Winnie? Maybe this is the thing we should solve. And by the way, it could possibly help us. (laughs) We have more time to work on Winnie. Totally. So it was like kind of like a duh moment for us, not like so much of an aha moment, but that, yes, like clearly being parents allowed us to see that. And then being not just being parents, but being at the stage where we were like actually going through that ourselves was super critical in those early days to being like, well, this is the stuff we definitely need. It kind of took away a lot of that, like, there's a lot of work in just understanding how people use your product and solving their pain points. We were able to like bypass a lot of that just through kind of feeling this ourselves. But I think it can also be a handicap as you grow and scale. And definitely at the point we're at now, we are building a marketplace that works across the United States for people of all incomes and needs. 40% of the childcare market is subsidized. In other words, it's interesting. these are families that receive childcare for free and the providers are in many cases, Head Start programs that get grants from the federal government to operate. And so like, that's a huge percent of the market. And we can't ignore that because we ourselves are not Head Start families. And the way Head Start families find care is very different. And so like, I would say it definitely helped us get started, but it's important to also recognize the limits of solving for your own pain points because we are not representative of our audience right now. We aren't even close. I love that you had the awareness to know that your growth would be far beyond what you needed. And I also find that, again, the entrepreneur thing, like solving the problem you have, but here you've married it with knowing that that problem extends far beyond your specific demographic. 
I have a kind of, I guess, a technical question for you, and that's why didn't more centers have data easily available before now, let alone why wasn't it aggregated in a user-friendly way? And is it true, two-parter here, is it true that nearly half of all daycare centers weren't even online? That seems so crazy to me. How is that? The group childcare market is kind of, you can think of it in two big buckets. One are centers, like a big licensed facility that has multiple classrooms and may accommodate 100 to 300 children in the facility. And then the other big bucket are home-based daycares. And in every state, they are required to be licensed if they care for usually more than four to six children. And they're regulated. They provide high-quality care. In many cases, they are more available and affordable than a bigger center. There's probably a home-based daycare down the street from where you live that you don't even know about. And these were the businesses that, for the most part, were not online whatsoever. Like no Yelp page, no Google listing, nothing. Right. They just weren't being captured at all. And the fact that they weren't on the internet means that millennial parents who were searching for care on the internet could not find them and didn't know they exist. And those businesses in turn weren't getting the same inquiries that businesses that do have an internet presence were. That was like kind of the big insight of the missing part of the market. But then like even the centers, it's a highly fragmented market. So a small center may have a website that doesn't even work or like there's no way to inquire from the website or it's very confusing versus like a bigger chain may have more of a marketing budget and have hired someone to build them a nice website. And so it was very hard to find and compare options, especially on the dimensions that parents care about, like price and whether they have open spaces. A lot of that was just not on the internet, even when they did have a website. And to your point, I mean, I think millennials, and I'm curious if you agree with this, as millennials become the primary generation that's parenting young children right now, don't we demand a level of transparency just in our lives that's far greater than before? So when we look at our childcare programs, maybe that wasn't required in the past. But for us, I mean, I want to know that information. I want to know it up front. I don't want to have to make five phone calls to get it. And I find it's very hard. I mean, do you think that millennials just demand more from the transparency side of things? It's really interesting building. We're a marketplace that we build both for parents who are primarily millennials and grew up with technology and are very tech savvy families kind of across the income spectrum, across the demographic spectrum. Like everyone searching from childcare just kind of has this baseline expectation of how consumer products should work. But then the childcare providers, like, wow, it is building for an entirely different audience. And many of that kind of user may not even have a computer that they ever use. Like they may be doing stuff off their phone, maybe. So it's just an entirely different kind of user. And the way childcare providers primarily like to receive phone calls from interested families. Families primarily like to never call anyone on the phone ever. <laughs> exactly. So it's exactly. just like marrying those two groups with a product is really challenging. And it's why kind of this marketplace is needed because they're pretty different in their behaviors. That yeah, makes sense. Absolutely. Shifting gears to dun, this dun, year. Dun. <laughs> yeah, really this year, COVID and childcare. 2020 has really put this spotlight on what those of us in the thick of it with parenting have at least 
I feel like if we've been screaming from the rooftops for quite some time, I'm talking about the cost and the availability of childcare. And this year, I mean, I think just has highlighted that to such an extreme. We got this whole thing wrong, didn't we? We being the country. We being the country. Like, we got this whole thing wrong, right? Oh, boy. I don't even know where to begin. But yeah, I I think as someone (laughs) who has been saying for the past five years how important childcare is to families and to parents' ability to work and to the success of children, it's nice to finally see that recognized, like a mainstream level and in the press and like people finally get it that childcare is important. And not just about the working status of parents, which is another thing that I think is finally coming to light, that children actually thrive when they're in a group environment around other children. And when they're completely isolated, like they're not thriving as much as they were. And parents are finally seeing that like, oh, wow, wait a minute. This was more than just a babysitter. My kids were actually learning and growing and thriving, being in this group environment where they could learn to be with other people and a caregiver outside of their home. Absolutely. I remember so I reading- think that, that kind of helps the industry overall. Yes. There was an article in New York Magazine this fall. Maybe it was a couple of weeks ago. Do you read it by any chance? I forgot. I wish I had the name of no. it. It was The Children of COVID. It's called something like that. And it basically talked about that. Oh, where that the people, specific issue. Where people were walking up to the two-year-old in a park and the kid was like, oh no, people. No, no <laughs> but it's just, no, but it was really just about it just really highlighted that specific issue that people maybe took for granted what the children were gaining in the group environment and how much they've suffered without it this year. It's really highlighted that. Well, I guess I would want to know, has this exposed the evolved family dynamic to some extent? Most millennials I know are dual income households for better or worse. These are people with student loan debt can't afford not to work or alternatively with illustrious careers who wouldn't want to be in a position to give up what they've worked so hard for. And not shockingly, it's women that are the ones who are now exiting the Correct. workforce in droves. The Which numbers makes me ill. Yeah. The statistic makes me ill, but it's true. I mean, women, working women in the United States were like hanging on by a thread prior to COVID <laughs> and kind of this just really intense patchwork of Childcare and trying to fit that into the way jobs work, which is typically not on the same hours and demands as a childcare provider operates. And many jobs are not nine to five jobs. And so all of this was sort of hanging on by a thread prior to COVID. And now these families have just broken and it's predominantly women bearing the brunt of this, which is just awful. And I feel like a lot of progress we made has been kind of set back by this. So with public school closures happening on the reg and so many young parents now juggling their children and their jobs, I'm curious how you're seeing childcare needs evolve during this time. Like what are the biggest standouts of, okay, this is how it might be moving forward. Where's the evolution in this? Our market, we've been really focused on kids ages zero to five kind of to date. And that has not been all that impacted by COVID kind of amazingly because childcare has been essential and continued to operate kind of throughout the pandemic and families, while they may have pulled their children out temporarily, the demand has really come back. So our kind of core market has been pretty stable, which is good because many businesses have not been stable during the pandemic. But what has been interesting has been the public schools are not operating in many locations across the United States. 
And public school was also a form of childcare for many families. And so we are now seeing kind of an increased reliance on childcare providers with older children who families need support with their care and distance learning during the school day and are utilizing daycares and in-home providers to do that. So I think one of the things we may see post-pandemic is just an increasing use of childcare services to support older children. This market was small before, and I think it will grow as providers are now flexing through the pandemic. And I think they'll want to continue providing this service because it's a new line of business for them. Right. And actually, our daughter's pre-K school is actually offering now for older children, many of which graduated from the school in the past, they're offering like, it's basically like somebody to watch over the kids as they're doing their distance learning and then fill the rest of their day with activities like art and some sports outside when they can. And it's kind of interesting to see. I mean, the demand is very high for that type of program. And also it's another revenue stream for our community center where our daughter goes to school. So it's kind of interesting to watch that evolve and just to see how that'll be. It has always been the case that the school day has not equaled the workday. The workday is typically longer. Say that again. And many families are not buyers of aftercare services. And so I think there is an opportunity for families are now recognizing that there's a role for childcare providers in bridging that gap between the school day and the workday. In this case, it's it's a huge gap, but even when COVID ends and school is back in person, there's still a gap. And so some of these changes could be permanent. Yeah. And I think families are sort of getting more exposure to the fact that childcare, group childcare providers can help with this and provide enriching educational experiences that add additional time to the school day and allow parents to work their full day. I'm curious to see just how much, almost in everything, especially in childcare, what sticks, what stays, what changes post-COVID. We're still in just getting here to the vaccinated world. So it'll be fascinating to me, like, does a lot of this stuff stick forever as far as, like you mentioned, older kids needing care? Like, are parents going to, is the pendulum going to swing the other way where it's like, I need more care than ever before because mom and dad want to go out to dinner and (laughs) get a minute to themselves? Or it's, this is a new normal that we're creating. So anyway, let's get back to you a little bit. You're a mom of three. And to me, what I would consider a strong female lead. (laughs) So (laughs) I would like to know what makes you like most proud when you step back and look at all you've accomplished in the last several years while being a young mother? I get excited. Sorry. (laughs) Don't scare, I guess. No, it's just really exciting. (laughs) I'm fangirling a little here. I think it's great. I think the thing I'm most proud of is like the impact that Winnie is having on families. It's the thing that gets me out of bed, aside from my son screaming every morning, (laughs) is just knowing that we're having an impact on families and providers that kind of goes, I think there's a lot of places that I could have career fulfillment and kind of meet my personal needs and earn a good living. But there's not a lot of things I could be doing with my time that kind of allow me to help other people at scale. And I think like that at the end of the day is the only thing that really is motivating me. Right, I get (laughs) it. Especially during these dark times that I can kind of think outside of myself and my own family's needs and try to help other people who, who need it more. Love it. 
Absolutely. In running a platform that supports parents, do you ever feel pressure to ensure that like you are supporting your employees enough in this arena? Because I would assume that Winnie is a pretty family-friendly place to work. I think it's super important. And actually, I see a lot of companies kind of make this misstep where they kind of talk a big game about how their brand and how important they are in the world and what they're doing for people everywhere. And then when you look at how they're running their own culture internally, they're not living up to that. And I have made it my own mission and my co-founder has made it her mission kind of since day one that we build the most family-friendly workplace internally. And if we're not doing that as table stakes, then that's a failure, no matter what we're building for the world. And I think that has very different than a lot of startups and tech companies you'll see. Like we put our employees first and we kind of want to build a culture that people will want to work at for a long time and is sustainable. And I think during the pandemic that has been put to the test as people face increased stress and pressure in their lives. But I hope that we are living up to that and building a place that people can bring their best selves to work because they have time outside of work to take care of the things that they care about, like caregiving. Well, I think you're meeting a demand here, but do you think that millennials and younger generations expect a family-friendly work culture? And as a moment of advocacy here, if they don't, well, why should they? So what's been interesting is we kind of, since day one, have been promoting that Winnie is such a great family-friendly place to work and we have great benefits for parents and we have flexible hours and unlimited vacation and great health coverage for your whole family and all these things that I thought would attract lots of parents to work for us. And it has, parents do want to work for us, but it's been amazing. Like we have more non-parents working for us than parents. That's interesting. And I think it's because- interesting. This generation really values having time outside of work to pursue other interests and also values like bringing their whole selves to work. I think what companies like Coinbase are doing where they're saying, you can't talk about Black Lives Matter at work. That's terrible. (laughs) Think about if you have employees that are personally impacted by that and they don't feel like they can share how it's impacting them with their colleagues and with the people they spend the most time with every day. I can't imagine that Black people would want to work for Coinbase. (laughs) And there was just stuff in the press that they don't. I feel like that is not the way to go about building a company and attracting world-class talent. You're not going to attract the best talent if you don't think about people as whole people and not just like workers for your company. So how do you think a company does better when it doesn't necessarily know where to start? Aside from flooding their halls with consultants. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, (laughs) ah, yes, the cure-all of consultants. By the way, I used to work somewhere where you would see these people with like laptops walking around the hallway. Never saw them before in your life. (laughs) We've never seen before. And they would, would say, who are those people? And they would say... That's the new technical team. I'm like, the technical team? <laughs> Those are the What's ma- the technical team? Those are the maximalists. Right, exactly. <laughs> but anyway. It starts with the leadership. It was super clear to me from the beginning, my co-founder and I have lived and breathed our values in terms of like, we say we're a flexible work environment and we support families, but then we also post in our Slack when we have to go take care of our kids and take them to the doctors 
or like nurse my baby on a million zoom calls because he constantly eats throughout the day. Yeah, because kids need food (laughs) to live. And they see us doing it and they feel permission to do that themselves or bring their own needs to the table. And I think no matter what you say as a leader, if you're not doing it, it's just really hard for people to feel permission to have their own needs. It doesn't have to be like one for one, like I'm nursing my baby so you can nurse yours. It's more like they see that I'm taking time out of my day to address personal needs. And I'm also being vulnerable and authentic with my employees when things aren't going well in my life. And they feel like then it's okay to do the same with their lives. I think that that is a hundred percent true and just really resonates with me. I mean, I'm an in-house counsel. I've been a lawyer for over a decade now, and I can't tell you how few jobs and few moments I have felt comfortable sharing my whole self and very much referring to my children. As a lawyer, you feel very, you're supposed to be a lawyer in business hours, and I'm a mom not in business hours. And they're really trying to find people to work for that really appreciate everything that you do in your life is who makes Heather Heather and not just assistant general counsel by day and mom at night. It's very hard. Even when you are the most unapologetic, like I put myself out there, I take what I need in terms of time and I advocate for myself. It's very hard when there's not people in positions of leadership doing the same. It's very hard to like step up and take what you need. So it's very interesting. I have no ability to comment in in that area whatsoever. And I just want to- You work for yourself and you have got no ability to comment. Yeah, I'm a dad who works for himself here. So I wanted to bring that up just as a a placeholder for how foreign a concept that is. And to the extent that I'm sure it is very difficult for a lot of people, especially those more in my position or with my way of thinking, how hard it is to see that and can't be good. So speaking of being a female leader, it feels like, at least to me, it feels like employees and corporate partners and investors sometimes seem like they expect more from female CEOs and leaders. Do you think the bar is set higher? It's so high. It's so high. Unreasonably high. Yes, definitely. I mean, at every step, it's higher, it's harder. And I am a white woman. I'm also speaking from a point of privilege and knowing that for women of color, it's out of reach. <laughs> and there are so many people that are coming from more challenges than I am. So I'm not trying to make it seem like I have it the hardest. I definitely don't. Women, there are studies that show that when they're asked questions by investors, they're asked about what they've achieved to date and their tractions and put on the defensive Versus when men are asked questions by investors, they're asked to kind of like describe their vision and talk about the future and how big something can get. And those are things that investors will lead that that's how they see deals is thinking about how big something can get, not defending what you've built so far. So at every point, I think women face kind of a different bar and more scrutiny than men. I completely agree. I feel like not even just in positions of leadership, which is generally speaking, confident women are punished. <laughs> That's how I Absolutely. feel. I feel like confident women are punished and viewed as a threat by men and other women alike. It's very hard. And it's hard to sing the song of like confidence to our daughters and really like live that truth and say, you know what, I'm a confident person and I'm going to try and advocate for myself as often as I humanly can without 
feeling some negative pushback on that. It's a challenge that I face. I don't know if that's so much as a question, but just more of a general comment. <laughs> if women are looking to you in your position and with the success you've achieved so far and, and will achieve for guidance, how would you empower a woman coming to you? What would you tell them? I mean, I don't mean to sound so negative. No, you don't. I don't think you do. It's just the truth. This is just where we're at right now. The truth hurts, but it does. I think there are also just so many opportunities for women to start companies. There's a lot. There's also a lot of research that shows that women, when they are given the opportunity and the shot, build more profitable businesses and are smarter about their funding because part of it is they have to be and are better managers and all these qualities that you would want in a leader. So I think we definitely need more women starting companies. And there are certainly plenty of women and part of becoming a founder and getting exposed to all these other amazing female founders is like seeing just how many examples of women there are to look up to and to learn from. That's wonderful. They're definitely out there. They don't always get the same press and accolades that men do, but they're there and they're doing amazing things and they're building amazing businesses. So come join us. And also it's the only way to build the kind of company that you would want to work for in its entirety. Like that has been the kind of amazing thing starting my own company is I can build something from the ground up that is the place I want to work and spend my career. And there's lots of great companies out there, but nothing is exactly like Winnie. I resonate with that. Building something that's yours in, in your voice that provides the level of authenticity that you want to bring to it and know that you're creating a change or having impact I think that's the biggest joy about having your own business. And I really appreciate you sharing that with me. And again, man here. <laughs> On that front, I just wanted to point out how, from my kind of outsider view, looking into a lot of what the two of you were talking about here, what's exciting for me is changes this big happen slowly. And what's really happening now is, and this is a relative measurement is how fast things are relatively happening when it comes to areas of equality, especially around gender or women in the workforce. And I think it's worth pointing that out, that it must be exciting from your standpoint to be able to do what you've done and built what you've done and have that impact. And last thing I'd say is like you say, in the beginning, you kind of chuckled a little bit when you mentioned how long you've been doing this. It was like five to six years. And I almost as someone who founded a business, could see in that moment you like lamenting and just kind of looking back at all that you've accomplished. So again, congratulations on all of that. And now before we let you go, we want to end the podcast with the same question we ask all our guests. You should have been sleeping, but what's been keeping you up at night? Oh boy. Besides my son, the main thing yeah, <laughs> keeping me up kids. at night has been just thinking about the impact of the pandemic, especially on women and working women, and making sure that they have access to quality childcare and can stay in the workforce. And they've already been hit really hard. There's already studies that show that women are dropping out of the workforce in record numbers. And so helping them get back to work if they want to, and making sure that childcare businesses are still around and in business and able to meet this increased demand when it starts really ramping up, which I think it will in the new year. So we are just 
spending a lot of time <laughs> gearing up Absolutely. for kind of an increase in a big influx of demand for childcare. 100%. Well, again, Heather and I can't thank you enough for taking time. Thank you so much, Sarah. To come on We Should thank Be you. Sleeping and chop it up with us. Now, where can everyone find you, Winnie? What's the best way for people to look you up? You can find Winnie at Winnie.com, W-I-N-N-I-E.com. You can find me. I'm prolific on Twitter at SM or on Instagram at S-M-A-U-S-K. And Winnie is also on Twitter and Instagram. So no shortage of social media platforms to find us on. Very jealous of your Twitter handle, SM. I wish I had Doug. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you for staying up with us and checking out We Should Be Sleeping. Connect with us on social media, subscribe to the podcast, and learn more at weshouldbesleeping.com. We'll see you next time on We Should Be Sleeping. We should be sleeping.